Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. Out of CIUT 89.5 FM, or your local community radio station. And my name is David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And Lauren Latour is at the theater. Yes. I'm assuming that means she's at a play. I would presume so. When someone says they've been given theater tickets, you don't assume she's seeing a moving picture. That's true. But we have a whole bunch of climate news, environment news, and Stefan's going to interview Rahul Mehta, who's trying to stop urban sprawl in Peel. Yes. He's an organizer with an, with an organization called Stop Sprawl Peel, which does exactly what you'd think. Now, that's the Peel region. Yes. Large region. Yes. Southern Ontario. He's personally based in Mississauga, but uh, <clears throat> the region is larger. And you're talking about how to stop urban sprawl? There's a particular plan being decided upon in Peel that would basically push it out to its furthest most boundaries instead of trying to find other ways to densify. So are we going to jump into the news? or I, I have one uh, thing off the top. I want to briefly touch on ways, uh, on one way, which I ran into today, actually, in which the media can take what is an interesting question and one that could you know, generate potentially useful discussion and solutions and instead flatten and misconstrue it to a point where those engaging with it are often left either misinformed or disempowered. And so the example that led me to this today is an article that came out this week on C- from the CBC which is basically trying to answer what I think is an interesting and useful question. And that's, with gas prices so high, as they currently are, why aren't people driving less? You know, this is an especially useful question for those of us who are interested in reducing Canada's emissions, given the fact that our current federal government is overly relying on an increasing price on carbon, and that over 10% of Canada's emissions come from car or truck transportation. And so we really do actually have to figure this question out. And the current gasoline prices that, are, that have been pushed up uh, by the war in Ukraine are significantly higher than any price on carbon would make them for many, many years to come. So this is sort of an example of what we might see with a price on carbon, you know, 10 years down the road, and certainly not one that the price on carbon would create now. So it's a bit of a vision into the future, or you can imagine it as such. And so if even this spike isn't enough to change behavior, we should be concerned. And the article is written uh, by a guy named Don Pittis, uh, and he gives, so, gives us some pretty compelling answers to this question, which are basically that for many drivers, there are no real alternatives uh, to their car trips, and that most of the trips they're taking are required for work. You know, they're commuting trips, and they have to go in, and so they have to take them. And then it also goes up further and points out that, this, that there are even fewer options for those driving transport trucks and goods. Also included in the article is that for more discretionary trips of folks, say, taking weekend trips out to nature, for example, uh, those are some of the most cherished escapes. And so the people are, people are willing to pay a premium to get out there. And then the article concludes with research from... Sumit Gulati and Werner Antweiler from the UBC, which shows that the longer higher gas prices continue, the increased chances that people will actually begin to see them as permanent 
And if they see them as permanent, then they actually will begin to make changes to their life that would reduce, reduce their driving. And so part of this is that they just sort of see these things as, as short-term. So given all of this, what should we take away and learn? Perhaps that providing alternatives uh, like good public transit or cycling routes is an absolute necessity to complement any market-based climate action. Or maybe that we're failing to provide those without vehicles easy access to all the nature that, we are co- that, that Canada- Canadians are so constantly boasting about. Or even maybe that having nearly all of our goods transported by truck makes us very susceptible to high oil prices and oil price shocks, and that perhaps we should find alternative ways to move our goods around this giant country. Any of those would strike me as a very reasonable takeaway from this article. And yet, that is not what the CBC decided to give us. Or I should at least say whoever decided to write the headline and the tweet that went with it. Because instead, despite quite literally nothing in the article to back it up, the headline reads, quote, Canadians love their cars so much that high fuel prices won't make most of us change our ways. And that is how an article that pretty clearly displays the ways in which Canadians are currently trapped into car-dependent lifestyles, which puts them at the whims of giant oil companies who are raking in record profits right now because of this war, becomes, for the 95% of people who will just scroll past it on their newsfeed, a piece about how much we just love getting stuck in traffic. Well, you remember that art, that uh, long piece? I, I, was it in the New York Times a couple of years ago? Um, Nathaniel Rich wrote about how climate change is just a, is a function of you know human beings uh, like lack of foresight or wanting a certain lifestyle without understanding ecological. You remember that saying that climate change is an inevitable result of of humanity's like lack of uh, intelligence, essentially. Right. The the losing Earth. The decade we almost stopped climate change. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like that because. With the headline, they say, we love our cars, right, so much, therefore we have all this infrastructure that's inevitably keeping it this way. Yeah. Those with power, specifically the oil companies and car companies, have designed and taken over planning processes and bought up all the streetcars that existed and put them, turned them into buses and you know, did all these number of things to make the world it is today and instead decides that the world is like it is today because we because it was a natural outcome and not because it was pushed that way by those who had the power to do so. But this is probably just like someone writes an article and someone else does the headline. Oh, and it it's just like, almost certainly is, but it's there's not a egregious. <laughs> it's unbelievably egregious. Like I went to the article looking instead to talk about the ways in which a we can't just rely on pricing. Uh, mechanisms. And instead, I was left being so mad about how it was misconstrued by the headline that I could not talk about it. And now you've used the phrase, the ways in which, probably 11 times since the beginning of this episode. It's like the middle bonus square for my bingo. Right. You can't you can't forge a sentence without it. Yeah. All right. Um, Shall we go to a quick music break and then news? Yeah, let's do that. What? Fuck! 
the green majority canada's longest running environmental news hour and we are about to do the news now we're doing the news now and uh not that we have any reporters or journalists but uh we nonetheless report let us report (laughs) we have a right to report so co2 concentrations of the atmosphere have reached their highest level on record This is officially 420 parts per million, which we reported happened like a year and a half ago or something. I mean, it happens. It like again briefly and again. blips and goes down, but now they're saying now it's happened for for real or something. But I mean, I, there was a there was a measurement a while ago that said 420, but perhaps it wasn't sustained for enough enough number of days for it to become the official number. Or it, or it was a rounding concentration difference. Yeah. So anyway, CO2 concentration is still going up, whatever. Um, Damien Carrington and Matthew Taylor have done an investigation for the Guardian of planned fossil fuel projects from the biggest oil companies. And they write, quote, The fossil fuel industry's short-term expansion plans involve the start of oil and gas projects that will produce greenhouse gases equivalent to a decade of CO2 emissions from China, the world's biggest polluter. These plans include 195 carbon bombs, uh, which are gigantic oil and gas projects that would each result in at least a billion tons of CO2 emissions over their lifetimes, in total equivalent to about 18 years of current global CO2 emissions. About 60% of these have already started pumping, Uh, The dozen biggest oil companies are on track to spend $103 million a day for the rest of the decade, exploiting new fields of oil and gas that cannot be burned if global heating is to be limited to well under 2 degrees Celsius. And uh, the Middle East and Russia often attract the most attention in relation to future oil and gas production, but... They write, the U.S., Canada, and Australia are among the countries with the biggest expansion plans and the highest number of what they call carbon bombs. And the U.S., Canada, and Australia also give some of the world's biggest subsidies for fossil fuels per capita. Deforestation in the Amazon hit a record high for the month of April. And a government study out of China has found that the sea levels on China's coasts have reached a new record high. Those are four incredibly bad omens. But I want to spend an extra second... A little bit incredibly bad. Very predictable omens. Very predictable omens, sure. But, (laughs) you know, two of those are saying things are as bad as they ever have been, and the other two are saying, and we're doing nothing about it. Everybody knows that. All right, well... I want to spend an extra second on the second point. Okay. 
um, as it relates partially to a conversation that we had with Tim Nash last week. Uh, in our conversation, Tim noted that the, in the past few months, sustainable investment portfolios have underperformed uh, as they have been left out of the windfall that has come to oil and gas companies and military stocks due to the war in Ukraine, which in our articles that I've seen has been called a failing of the first big tests of ESG and big and business sections. And so... I just want to be as clear as I possibly can. There are two possible realities that exist when considering these new fossil fuel projects. One is that these investments are stranded, that the world gets off oil fast enough at a fast enough rate. That means that they never make the money back uh, and that the money being pumped into them and all those who invested in, in them lose some of their it lose some, if not all of their money. Option two is we burn it all. We burn everything that they're currently working on. We miss every climate target that countries have committed to, and we blow past two degrees of warming and into a very dangerous future. And the people who have invested in these projects may not lose money, but that money will certainly lose its value as the world collapses around them. And there is no option three. No amount of hand-wringing hand -wringing from the quote-unquote business community will change the physical laws of nature. And so I just want to give a quick shout-out to all the activists working to push banks, pension funds, endowments, and everything else away from this death cult that we call oil and gas stocks and really large parts of the fossil fuel investment project. Because at this point, it truly is divest or we all die. Okay, well, now you've said too much. The cat's out of the bag. The cart is before the horse. The horse is headbutting the cart. Well, your next story is There are positive. two large dogs on a summer day, and both of them are starving. How many times did the preacher sing prior to the induction of the uh, ballerina's consort approval? You know what I'm talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. All right. Well, I'm just going to move on. Then, <laughs> I'm not being heard. I'm simply not being heard. If someone did get that reference, please tweet at me and explain what it was. All right. So it wasn't a reference, Stefan. It's just it's it's a cultural it's a cultural intuition that I have. Okay. All right. <clears throat> New, more news here. Uh, supply chains for wind energy technology have been disrupted by the war in Ukraine. What else is new? Am I right? right. But clean energy spending has risen 5%, 50% globally in the past five months. And a major rise in renewable energy capacity is being driven by solar investments in China and Europe. A study published in the journal Science estimates that countries around the world could be liable for up to $340 billion in total for taking measures to shift away from fossil fuels because so many countries have signed agreements with fossil fuel companies to protect those companies from government action. The authors of the study write, quote, that $340 billion is more than countries worldwide put into climate adaptation and mitigation measures combined in fiscal year 2019. And it doesn't include the risks of phasing out coal investments or canceling fossil fuel infrastructure projects like pipelines and liquefied natural gas terminals. Uh, 
It means that money <clears throat> countries might otherwise spend to build a low-carbon future could instead go to the very industries that have knowingly been fueling climate change, severely jeopardizing countries' capacity to propel the green energy transition forward. So the whole green energy transition, they're saying, could be halted and actually just that money just given into the pocket of uh, companies suing governments. Because <clears throat> of fossil fuel treaties. Fossil fuel treaties. Oh, great. Uh, next, India has halted wheat exports. Wait. My father is sending me an email about the bird that I was hearing chirping outside the window. Okay. Shout out to Steve. Shout out Steve. He says it's a robin. <laughs> India has halted wheat exports as the whole of Southeast Asia continues through a heat wave of temperatures close to 50 degrees Celsius. Mother Nature, meanwhile, has been given legal personhood by an Indian judge of the Madras High Court. So they're no longer exporting wheat because they need to make sure they have enough for their own people. Um, Record-breaking temperatures and wildfires are causing mass evacuations in Texas and New Mexico. And the Climate Prediction Center is claiming that most of the U.S. will see above-average temperatures all summer long, and a portion will see below-average rainfall. Las Vegas is turning to its backup water strategy as Lake Mead continues to disappear. The backup strategy is simply pumping water from deeper within the lake. The U.S. Interior Department has taken major steps to try to preserve Lake Powell, which is also drying up and is also part of the same water system as Lake Mead. The Associated Press points out, quote, Lake Mead and Lake Powell upstream are the largest human-made reservoirs in the U.S., part of a system that provides water to more than 40 million people, tribes, agriculture, and industry in Arizona, California, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, and across the border in Mexico. The water levels in Lake Powell have been dipping close to a threshold below which 6 million people may not have access to hydroelectricity. Special U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry recently stated at an electric industry forum that, quote, we want to stay on that accessible target of 1.8 degrees, and the only way to do it is to fully implement the promises that have been made. The statement represents a shift in focus away from 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. And he's probably saying, because there, there was that recent uh, report saying that if everything is implemented fully and on time, then, we're aim then, we'll, then we'll, we might hit 1.8. Um, and finally, the United States did even less plastics recycling last year than average as they recycled only 5 or 6% of all the plastic waste created in the country. A, we have to get off plastics. Recycling is not a solution. Like, recycle what we can, but we have to find other ways to just not create it. But more specifically, to temper the good news uh, of that solar story off the top of that section, and to prove to you, Dave, that I fulsomely regret my optimism re the Biden administration, uh. there's another story that Honestly, is a, I think actually a bigger story that I haven't seen so much in most news media. It's been mostly only covered in like kind of like techie climate places. But while oil companies are making massive profits 
And the Biden administration signs, you know, LNG, liquid natural gas deals, um, and begins to still open up more land for drilling. The Department of Commerce has begun an investigation into whether more tariffs should be added to solar panels that have come from southern uh, Southeast Asia that they think may have been made into China. And this investigation has basically ground the solar industry to a halt in the United States. And it's expected to grind along until at least until about August. The Solar Industry Association estimates that forecasts have been cut by 46% for the next two years, which could amount to 24 gigawatts of solar power not coming online. Wait, you're saying that because they want to make sure they're taxing Chinese imports properly, they're halting 46% of solar production? They are concerned that some imports that are coming from other countries in Southeast Asia are actually being coming from China originally. And therefore, they shouldn't. Therefore, because it's coming from China, there are these huge. They're like ten percent or fifteen percent tariffs that they want to put on them, and that would like double or triple the cost of some of these in, intended installations. And so everyone has basically stopped doing anything because they don't know if they can afford the solar panels or what's happening. And the whole and this, this happened in March, and it's going to go probably until August. That's like four or five months of nothing happening. And so there you have it. Barring a complete shift in in either Joe Manchin's feelings or the American populace's care for the Biden administration, likely the biggest impact of two years of Democratic-controlled White House, Senate, and Congress will be increased oil production and a decimated solar industry. You did it, Democrats. Way to go. I mean, this shows how the uh, maintenance of the um, imperial um, superstructure takes precedence over everything else. You got to subdue China. You got to subdue Russia. Yeah. And you know what Biden has recently done? Also, he sent troops back into Somalia. Trump took them out, and now Biden has put them back in. He wants to kill some people in Al Shabaab. But what also recently happened was that the Somalian government went back on an oil deal with a U.S. company. So. Maybe that maybe that deal will actually shift now that the troops are back in Somalia. And you said that we shouldn't bring a uh... whatever. This isn't doom, Stefan. This is truth. Truth is not doom. All right, it's true. There are still people doing good work out there. So we're continuing with the news. Final news section. Offshore oil drilling in the United States has effectively come to a halt as industry is apparently not interested in drilling off Alaska and various court rulings have complicated drilling off the Gulf of Mexico, leading the Biden administration to cancel planned offshore lease sales. Political opponents and industry people have denounced the decision, but 9,000 offshore permits have already been approved and are not being used. Now for Canada... 3,800 people are under evacuation orders in Hay River, Northwest Territories, uh, as the town is flooding, even though its location was chosen specifically for its unlikeliness to flood. Inuit hunters in Nunavut are speaking out again against the Baffinland Iron Iron Mine expansion proposal, arguing that the mine has driven the narwhal away. APTN reports that the mine is one of the richest iron deposits in the world and that marine shipping has increased dramatically in the area since the mine opened in 2015. Uh, 
The narwhal uh, that arrive in summer have declined from 20,000 in 2004 to 2,600 in 2021. Hunters tried to stop the company last year. I think it was last year. I believe so. When they blockaded the airstrip. The Nunavut Impact Review Board, which was convened specifically for this purpose, uh, has now officially rejected the mine expansion proposal. Northern Affairs Minister Daniel Vandal will now approve or deny the expansion within 90 days. The Lennox Island First Nation recently became the second Mi'kmaq nation to launch a self-regulated fishery after the government failed to make space for them. They reached a temporary understanding with the DFO a few days later for a thousand total traps. Treaty law says First Nations <clears throat> are allowed to run self-regulated fisheries. Or I don't know if it's just Mi'kmaq First Nations or just First Nations in Nova Scotia, but in the area, treaty law says First Nations are allowed to run self-regulated fisheries. But our governments have been trying to prevent them, even though our law says they can. Uh, <clears throat> the Pictou Landing First Nation also recently reached an agreement with the DFO to operate a fishery in the future. Meanwhile, researchers in Australia and North America have published a study in Nature Communications finding that First Nations sustained very high-yield oyster fisheries for 10,000 years, and therefore indigenous knowledge should be used to help manage oyster fishing today, as stocks have declined by around 85% in the past two centuries. The UN has called for an investigation into human rights violations perpetrated by Canadian police against Sequebunk and Wet'suwet'en people stemming from the Trans Mountain Expansion and Coastal Gaslink pipelines. Wet'suwet'en recently reported round-the-clock surveillance and harassment by police and pipeline security forces. The federal government, meanwhile, has declared that the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or UNDRIP, is only an, an interpretative aid and can't be used to change laws, even though the government previously declared that all federal laws had to be in sync with UNDRIP. The argument was made in a legal dispute about First Nations election law. And finally, here in Ontario, emissions from power generation are predicted to rise by over 400% in the next 20 years, through the next 20 years, due to Doug Ford's cancellation of 750 renewable energy projects as soon as he claimed power four years ago. And one other piece of news, because it is breaking news when we record this show on Wednesday evening, We'll likely have more to discuss about it next week, but the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, is stepping down as leader of the UCP after just getting 51 support, 51% support, 51% of support during his leadership review. That's not good enough? Uh, I, that is apparently not good enough, mm. at least for him. Jason Kenney, who presided over $3 million, was it $30 million, or is it how many millions of dollars did he spend... Oh, on the on war a room? war room tackling environmental dissent against the tar sands. $30 million. $30 million he, he earmarked. Is that the right word? Earmarked? Is that what you earmark bills for stuff? I don't know. As well as the uh, Keystone expansion, which failed. Yeah, although, of course, I think most of the displeasure is from his right rather than his left. What has he done wrong? I believe what it's like. Well, it's a combination of weird he, things. He he he. Uh, 
but he probably just took COVID a little too seriously. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, took COVID too seriously. Despite if you look at his actual, like he is responsible for incalculable number, calculable number of deaths across <laughs> Alberta because of his complete failure to take COVID seriously. He should have been responsible for more. I mean, last year he literally stated they were going to have their best summer ever. I believe those were the words before it getting hit by a huge COVID wave. It's got white boy summer vibes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Shout out Chet Hanks. Let's go to music break, and we'll be back with Rahul Mehta, an organizer with Stop Sprawl Peel. Really great conversation. Really smart guy. I think you'll enjoy it. And you too can stop urban sprawl at home. I mean, yeah, that's the that's the goal. I'm assuming he's talking about making little knickknacks. No. Poking those knickknacks in certain pressure points with pins. They're they're no. Those knickknacks shaped like certain individuals. In the political system. <clears throat> None of that is true. No. I am here with Rahul Mehta, who is a community organizer with Stop Sprawl Peel. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So by way of introduction, how did you get interested in the environment and in activism more generally? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been in Mississauga pretty much all my life, uh, you know, in the, in the shadow of Toronto, so to speak. And the issues have kind of crept up. They kind of crept up through high school in the environmental club, you know, doing, doing kind of the basic stuff, talking about trees, talking about plants, that kind of thing. And as I volunteered more and got to learn more about my community, I started to see, well, you know, just some things didn't sit right. It really didn't feel like I had much of a say in how I wanted to move around in my city. And it didn't feel like there was much for me to stay in the city beyond a certain age. And as I've, as I've grown up through university and, and studying and learning more about planning, especially in environmental sciences, I've come to realize like there's a real gap between kind of the history of the city and, and its ability to evolve for what present generations and future generations are going to need. And so my advocacy kind of grew out of that through kind of environmental focused issues to now more about like fundamental things around sustainability. So access, equity, affordability, those have really come center stage. And I, I think that's starting to happen for a lot of the population. Yeah, for sure. I think that transition is one that you sort of see more broadly with environmentals. And I think that's a really necessary thing that we've seen. And so perhaps people could have begun to figure out what Stop Sprawl Peel might be about, given its very useful name. But a bit of a tongue uh, twister, right? <laughs> a bit of a tongue twister, but at the same time, very clear in your goal, I would say. You know, it's not often that the goal is literally the name of the organization. Right. However, what is it and what is it fighting uh, against? or four. Yeah, absolutely right. So there's there's two sides to that, I guess. This is kind of born out of the official plan process in Mississauga, but also the region of Peel. So next door to Toronto, we've got two levels of local government. The region of Peel includes Mississauga, Brampton, Caledon. And unlike maybe say in Toronto, their planning process, you have one overarching plan here, we have four. So you have the regional official plan first. Once that gets approved, our local official plans kind of line up behind it. And that tells us everything around what should be built where. So the planning and policy frameworks for the entire 1.5 million plus now in Peel. And as this process has gone on, really just in the past two years, the issues have really just exploded around 
kind of what, what's exactly in this plan and who's it being made for? Uh, there's been a lot of changes to the process by which the official plans have to be made. So the growth targets and density targets, the timelines, so when it's due and how long it goes into the future. So not 2031, not 2041, but now 2051. So the longest time frame that's ever been required um, under the current provincial government, those rules have changed now to extend that, but at the same time hasten when it needs to be submitted. So July 1st of this year, it's put a lot of pressure on municipalities and what myself through other members of the public and volunteers speaking up about this issue, we're like noticing there's a lot in here that's kind of perpetuating some of the worst practices we've seen that have actually made this place less affordable, less livable. So things like sprawl, you know, paving over farmland, or in this case, even green belts, you know, going beyond what was already allowed. So the the built boundary, where could we already build? It's saying, let's keep pushing outwards. Let's say we're going to still have some big towers in the cities, but let's say, let's actually dilute that density. Let's not try and change how we might plan and build our communities because, well, suburbs on the surface, they look like they paid for themselves. The debt is coming. And so if we spread out more, we'll continue to get that kind of quick short-term gain, that quick short-term development money. And we, the politicians approving it, kind of unfortunately, right? We can make that decision now, even though it's up to 30 years in the future, people might be impacted. So Stop Sprawl Peel was like, you know, no, no, enough. We've seen urban boundaries held in other municipalities. So it's famously known in Waterloo Region. You know, they celebrate the line between the urban and the farm area. They're surrounded by farmland. But now in this actual process, this new process, the Municipal Comprehensive Review, or MCR, Hamilton, Halton Region right next door to us, and now Aurelia is in the process of all saying, we're actually going to freeze our urban boundaries. So we're going to actually start to completely rethink how density and growth happens within our suburb or within our city and, and challenge how the province has interpreted these new rules. So we're going to meet the province's targets. We're going to submit it on time, but we're going to say no to that sprawl component the province has been really encouraging with their language. And we're all about saying, we're, we're going to stop that. And we're going to imagine, you know, real solution. So an actual alternative to how we could build, in this case, more within the towns of Caledon and the city of Brampton and Mississauga. A quick follow-up, actually, because sure. I think it's an important thing to understand, which is you mentioned there in regards to how basically getting that development money is a way to get new money quickly, but then th that there's sort of a debt that is accumulated there. Can you expand on that? Like, for how, let me help people understand what that debt ends up being and what feels like quick, easy money they can make now ends up costing the cities or the region more in the long term. Yeah, it's, it's truly something that creeps up on you. It's sneaky and you don't see it as someone who might be the quote unquote taxpayer on the surface because it takes, it can take decades, sometimes centuries, depending on the type of infrastructure you're talking about, right? Are you, are you talking about pipes? It's really about the time and the distance of building this infrastructure. So we're looking at pipes, sewers, bridges, electrical lines, roads, all the things that we need to service and connect the places we live, work, and play. The more we stretch them out, literally, geographically, so stretching things further outwards, and the things that we're reaching are of low density. So houses not within the city that are densifying. So don't even, these don't even have to be towers, but houses stretched far outwards, low density into farmland in Caledon. That costs a lot of money to service. You still have to build the same pipes and roads, right? In some cases you make them smaller, but that's really expensive. 
that's okay for a while, right? Because those things aren't going to break down overnight. But 10, 20, 40 years down the line, the initial money you had to build that, you don't have any money left to fix it. And what's worse is the population can change in such a way, like in Mississauga, our populations actually started to decline, which is mind-blowing for people to hear. But the census, it just shows it. That was the past five-year census. We're one of the few large municipalities to see a shrinking population. Our infrastructure debt today is $280 million, and it is ballooning. Brampton's still growing within their urban boundaries, so they still have the money coming in. And so they're using new money for new developments to pay for the debt of old developments that were also low density. You just get more efficiency when you have more people in one place connected to those same pipes. It's, it's, it's a bit of economies of scale, I guess you could say, but you talk sustainability, right? This is around money as well. And when people complain about their taxes, there's this weird contradiction of, well, you don't want more people here, but you also want to pay less taxes. You really can't have both. Yeah, for sure. And so that's a great economic explanation. And I think one that people get missed a lot, but there's also definitely and very clearly an environmental problem with sprawl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for folks who don't know about that, can you can you hammer home on those on those issues? Yeah. And, you know, as we hear more stories every day, I think it's so important, like, there's a lot of stories and, and perspectives in Peel region that we've been also trying to coalesce. I am no representative of Peel. I'm you know, someone in Mississauga and hearing from a farmer in Caledon or someone who wants to be a farmer there, you hear about just the, the contrast between these enormous plots of land that have been bought by developers and held for decades where it's just grass being grown. And you wonder, well, hey, that's not that's supposed to be agricultural land in the official plan. Why has that been held for decades? It's like it, you, you kind of get to see behind the scenes that developers have already known about this and demanded these changes for a long time. And the consequence for us is, you know, we're losing access to local food before these changes were already approved. We're seeing changes to the hydrology. So when you talk about downstream impacts, it might be, oh, you know, there's an oil spill somewhere. It impacts a fishery. It impacts what's on your plate. Well, it happens locally too. You have new roads and highways in Caledon. The salt running off of those roads is coming into your watershed. It's impacting the river as it moves down. It's impacting the soil, the air. Noise pollution is a thing. These might seem minor, but, you know, they accumulate. In some cases, literally, you know, we are accumulating the damage in what used to be an ecosystem kind of just hanging on the farther you went inland, right? So to the headwaters of the stream or to the prime agricultural farmland that's in the greenbelt. What the Peel official plan has really done is said, all the land between the current urban boundary and the greenbelt, let's just quickly fill it all in. So there's this whole space that's called the white belt, but really what it is, the Peel plain. It's some of the richest agricultural land in the country, which we don't have a lot of, you know, Canada is huge, but we have very little arable land. And this stuff is prime, as in it is the highest class of farmland. And it's either been bought by developers already, or the farmers there are feeling like we weren't heard. And and now with the approved plan, we weren't listened to because they've just pushed right into the Greenbelt boundary, as has, unsurprisingly, the proposed highway um, by the current provincial government. Yeah. And then, of course, just to so to add to that, there's the sort of more macro issues of how sprawl leads directly to climate change. You know, the, yes. the ways in which sprawl encourages car use and you know, lack of density and all these other types of ways that it encourages more greenhouse gas emissions more generally. And even the cement, even to build the roads, as you mentioned earlier, the cement is one of the most greenhouse gas emission intense operations that exist today. And, and you know what? There's a chain reaction happening here too, right? So 
it's not a coincidence that the highway proposed by the provincial government, Highway 413, for those who are uh, unfamiliar, it actually mirrors the urban boundary expansion. So Peel Region and Mississauga Council, they both rejected that highway, and yet they've approved an official plan that literally, it like, it like hugs the 413 routing. So they've essentially approved a highway by another method, because all of that's really suburban development, it's actually going to be zoned as low-rise residential and industrial warehouses. So feeding our online consumption addiction. So something that didn't have to be set in stone 30 years into the future, right? But we've approved it. And so what we're saying is this is okay. These are the kind of jobs we want, which are diminishing returns in a very sprawled area. And we're going to give people the same thing that I was first concerned about, you know, getting out of high school. We're going to give people less choice. They're actually going to have less housing choice moving into the future because we've said, let's open the floodgates outwards, more land, instead of forcing that door closed, the urban boundary, and actually saying, well, hang on, what is there something we can do differently for these houses that are now reaching the end of their life? Can they be upgraded? Can these people get a second income with a garden suite or a laneway house? Are there ways where we can kind of meet people who are against, say, skyscrapers or some certain type of housing? Is there a way we can get that diversification in? And in turn, you keep things tight, more people are going to start using transit if you invest in that instead, right? This highway is proposed to be like 6 to $10 billion, right? That's money we could choose to invest elsewhere internally within the cities and actually start to encourage that behavior change we love to talk about in local policy. So, you know, the climate impact is clear, but also just the, the burden of, of limited choice on people, it, it, it's really forcing some people to, to leave. And we see that with housing prices everywhere, right? If your only option is a, a detached home further and further away from the city, you're sort of forcing a particular lifestyle on people, right? Yes. And it, you're seeing it here in the GTA as well, or in Toronto as well. There are many different neighborhoods that are also decreasing in population. And it's like, while the overall is growing, it's just, it's become such an issue. So you mentioned a few of those like positive visionary steps. So I would love to give you a second to, to talk a little bit about what does a positive vision for appeal look like? What could appeal a more dense a more, you know, walkable and a more friendly peel look like. And then that's so important, right? I hate when you see like parties or, or groups just antagonizing each other and saying, no, you're worse, no, you're worse, without saying what, what do we actually do instead? So in terms of solutions, I mean, one of the most obvious is actually maybe it's too obvious, but our existing local plans give us a guide. They're actually really progressive in this is how we need to reduce emissions by say 50% over the next 10 years, or this is our cycling master plan. And now Mississauga has a pedestrian master plan, urban agriculture strategy. You know, every municipality has declared a climate emergency with actions they want us to take. Initially, it was to 2041 because of the previous deadline. And so they've talked about all sorts of initiatives from dramatically increasing the number of higher order transit corridors within the existing roads. We have, we have a couple of linear roads which have space. That's the beauty of the suburbs. We have spread out already. So there's actually ways to go back in and quickly add BRTs, protected bike lanes, more generous spaces for walking and cycling that are maintained all year round, not just in the summer season. And there's so many vacant lots, so many corner lots, gas stations where you can put density without anybody actually complaining about it. So that's actually a really critical point. There's a lot of places where even the most, you know, adamant NIMBY, so the, the most adamant person who says, I don't want any height, any other type of housing in my area would accept 
because we actually have that luxury of space. So most obvious, we have these spread out transit stations, these huge retail and commercial plazas that are ripe for height on top of them. Some of them are actually reaching the end of their life. And, you know, people know about this when they go to their local mall. A lot of malls are decaying and people wish there was actually housing there. You're seeing some bold proposals, but guess what? We need to meet the challenge where it's at across multiple fronts. So it can't just be, let's do the density now everywhere. It has to be, let's also require affordability. Let's put in the green roofs and renewable energy on top, like our plans already suggest we should, but let's actually require it because we've realized that suggesting for the past few decades has only led developers to you know nod and shrug. And then when the big plans come forward, like the official plan, they immediately go back to their old ways saying, well, hey, people still like houses, let's just build that everywhere. So, you know, we have to look back at our plans that already give us these good ideas and give them some teeth and then reflect them in the LP. And, and, you know, now that it's passed, we also have to think about how do we respond to this, you know, impending wave of changes. Yeah, for sure. And so a bit of a twist before we sort of bring it back for the last question, but it's something I've been asking a lot of people because, you know, as we move forward as activists in this world, it's, it's a little bleak, as I, I imagine you've experienced from time to time. And so do you experience climate anxiety? And if so, how do you manage it? Oh, boy. Uh, every every day I um, I choose to not drive. It's it's both a mix of values and frustration with what I see around me. And so for those who walk or bike or use transit, I, I think it's not it's not an arrogant thing to say that we have a different connection to the city. We do experience it on the ground at a slower pace, slower level. We also experience some things like air and noise and light pollution a bit more directly. We're literally just not in a shaded vehicle all the time. And so it hits home when you're in a suburb and you see a street barren of trees, but they've put in this, you know, this great trail that's supposed to get you where you finally wanted to go all these years. And it's actually deeply uncomfortable. It might, might be even worse than what was there before because they didn't actually think about how do we make this an enjoyable space and a climate resilient space, not just a space that's functional. And yeah, kind of moving through the suburb as, as you know, newer generations, we, we are having more progressive values and greater concern for how, how are these cities going to cope when the heat waves hit, when the ice storms hit. It's, it's a lot to take in when you feel like you know, policy doesn't have teeth and you feel like every other government is pulling things backwards, you know, one step forward, two steps back. So in terms of managing it, I'm also, you know, as I'm, as I'm experiencing maybe grief or struggle navigating my city, I can also visualize what it could look like instead. I can also create the communities that I want at least to see, to help advocate and nurture others who might feel they, they might be at that precipice of, you know, leaving high school and not knowing, you know, where they're going to go from there. Are they going to even want to stay here? So hoping to inspire folks that maybe it's something that I wish I had at a younger age. And um, again, the policy, it's baffling to me sometimes, but, you know, it makes sense by the design of the city. There's so much opportunity to have your say, even in a broken system, even in a very weak democracy, the local consultations, the provincial, the federal, there are so few young people involved in those spaces. And when you do get involved, it does pay off. It takes time. It's a lot to read and it's a lot to sort through. So, you know, finding a community of people to work through these things, it's something I'm still working on, but it is very gratifying. And to see others then respond to the information I've learned and shared, it, it it's, it's building that tent 
I'm, I'm connecting with people in, in healthcare, in agriculture that I might have not initially associated with environmental, core environmental issues or core climate change, uh, the climate change community, I guess. And, you know, now like with this group and Stops for Appeal, it's really everybody, but you have to, you know, meet them where they are and try to understand what is their perspective that, that ties to this issue. And yeah, increasingly it is, it's, it's climate change. So their day-to-day impacts and it's affordability. And so let's talk about building that big tent. People have listened to this. They've heard you speak. Maybe they live in the Peel region. How can they get involved in your work? How can they join and how can they learn more? Yeah, it would be great to have more people involved. Every day matters because we do have, you know, it's a year of two elections. There's a provincial election, June 2nd, and then in late October, we have our municipal elections. So it's it's not ideal always to say, okay, well, you know, just vote like or vote. It's important. Of course, it's just one tool of many and it's not always the easiest or most accessible for everyone. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to just create a wave of understanding and capacity so people can understand what exactly has happened with this official plan being approved. How is it going to affect their lives and what comes next? You know, there are dozens, if not hundreds of local consultations for every one official plan. And we want more people engaged in this process so that they on their own accord eventually will actually be involved. This isn't an organization that needs to last forever. What we're going to do in the short term is have people, you know, continue to connect with us on social media. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, stopsprawlpeel.org. You you can subscribe for email updates. And what we're doing in the immediate term is really educating folks. Where does every candidate stand on this provincially, right? This original struggle for the current official plan happened because of a provincial mandate put onto municipalities. Now, they, of course, have a role to play, but we're going to get to that in the fall again. So right now, we want people to think about, you know, what are the issues we care about around sustainability, around the environment, around livability, and where do all the candidates stand on these issues across all parties? We think it's important to be nonpartisan because, again, this, this tent can really include everyone. And so we can help folks. There's a campaign through environmental defense called Vote for the Environment, which just actually provides some great questions you can ask people who knock at your door. And so they can help you frame and structure the conversations you want to have to help you, you know, just understand in a very short period of time, you know, what is the position of this next wave of candidates and the parties that they are representing. So we hope to really connect to the public more that way. So we're going to have group email blasts, group phone banking, and again, sharing some of these other nonpartisan groups resources to help them make the most informed decision on June 2nd. And hopefully, you know, there is still hope to change this official plan, depending on the outcome of the election. So if people really continue to push and speak up, the politicians, they will pay attention. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rahul Mehta, who is an organizer with Stop Sprawl Peel. Thank you so much for being here and good luck.